Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to spend some time reading and thinking about these stories about Jesus. And I pray that as we sung just a moment ago, that indeed you would speak to our hearts. Um, the author of Hebrews said long ago in many ways and in many different seasons you spoke by the prophets, but in these days you are speaking to us through your son. And so I pray uh, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that would believe on the name of the Lord Jesus uh, in deep, fresh, strong ways, uh, and that we would become like you and we would experience peace. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a pleasure uh, to be able to speak to you this morning. And I'm going to try to explain and describe uh, what was just read to you from Mark chapter 4. This is uh, just the book of Mark, as we call it. It's a, the, called the Gospel of Mark. It's really a biography of Jesus written by Mark, who was, uh, Peter was one of Jesus's, in a sense, closest apostles, and uh, Mark was a disciple of his. So kind of a, uh, almost like a, he got it firsthand from Peter, these stories. He collected them and wrote them down for us. And these two stories, these episodes, as I'll call them, kind of go together. And uh, basically what they're talking about is uh, some sort of chaos that then leads to peace. Title of the sermon, Our Chaos, Jesus's Peace. Uh, and so they're connected. You know, in the one story, you've got uh, this circumstantial chaos, you know, the storm, uh, as we'll talk about when we get into it in just a minute. Um, and, you know, in the boat, there's Jesus sleeping. And then once he gets up, the situation changes. It was chaotic, and now it turns into a situation of calmness and peace. And so then in the next story, you know, we're, you know Jesus said in the boat, like, hey, we're going to go to the other side. And the next episode is he gets to the other side, and what he encounters on the other side is not someone, uh, not a situation of chaos, but a soul in which there is a tremendous amount of chaos. And so by the time Jesus gets done with his interaction with that individual, you see that individual uh, at peace as well. And so certainly, um, you know, this, these stories are going to speak to us, um, you know, in our circumstances that we might experience chaos and in our souls when we experience it as well. And make no mistake, uh, chaos, and, you know, chaos plus time equals pain. Okay, there's just no question about that. Um, you know, I used to coach uh, three and four year old soccer. That's chaos. <laughs> and if I just let them go, inevitably some kid would kick another kid, take the ball, whatever, blah, blah, you get the point. So that cute little story is an illustration on a much bigger level, the chaos of our circumstances, the chaos of our lives and how Jesus wants to speak into them. So we're going to look at those two stories. But before we do that, I'm going to spend just a couple of minutes right here talking about something that seems pretty much disconnected altogether, okay? So um, what I want to talk to you about is this idea of the exodus or the new exodus. And so if you've not been around church very much, the idea of the exodus was when God's people, Israel, they were enslaved and oppressed in um, Egypt and then God comes and he rescues them 
Of course, he uses his servant Moses and Aaron uh, along the way as mediators of his power and wisdom, but God is the one who comes and rescues them, and he leads them through uh, the waters into the wilderness and into the promised land. That story called the Exodus really frames and shapes pretty much the whole Bible, all right? And so that's a really important thing, and the reason why I'm bringing it up here is to remind us that the way Mark is telling the story of Jesus He wants us to have that in mind. So, if you're tracking with me, that Exodus thing happens in the beginning of the Bible, actually the book called Exodus. (laughs) Okay? The people are rescued, they bring in the promised land, but eventually due to their sin and rebellion, they go back into exile, and God sends other prophets, namely Isaiah, who says there's going to be another Exodus that's going to come, another deliverance, a setting people free, that's going to be like the ultimate and final one. And so we talked about this in our, you know, I'm sure you guys all remember the sermons we preached, you know, two months ago. No, I'm kidding. We talked about this. But I want to remind you from this quote, the original Exodus pattern, so deliverance from Egypt, then journey through the desert, and then arrival in the promised land, is transformed into the hope of a grander, bigger Exodus. This is speaking about what Isaiah is going to prophesy. And again, Isaiah is about 600 years before Jesus comes. So Isaiah talks about deliverance from the exiles from the power of Babylon. So it's not Egypt anymore. Now it's Babylon and its idols. Then Yahweh, that's the name for the Lord, is going to lead his leading and provision for his blind people along the way. And then ultimately there's going to be this arrival an enthronement in a gloriously restored Zion. Zion, you know, we will feast in the house of Zion. Jerusalem, that's the place where it's symbolic of God's presence. So that's the pattern. Deliverance, leading, fulfillment, promised land, presence of God. But Isaiah 40, verse 3, which is quoted in Mark chapter 1, 1, 2, and 3. So that's why this is relevant to Mark. Without Yahweh's presence, there can be no salvation. So there's no deliverance, no exodus, no freedom, no liberation if God, Yahweh, the Lord, doesn't show up. Now, Mark's new exodus macro structure, this is a really academic book, that just means the big story of Mark, (laughs) presents Jesus delivering Israel from the strong man, Beelzebub. Beelzebub is the name for Satan, God's arch enemy, so to speak. So the deliverance isn't Egypt or Babylon anymore. This is the ultimate deliverance from God's enemy, from sin, and from Satan. And then this person, Jesus, is going to lead his blind followers along the way. And if you read this, you will see that the followers of Jesus are kind of like, they don't really get what's going on most of the time. They're basically like, you know, three blind mice, okay? But eventually Jesus arrives in Jerusalem powerfully overcomes all the evil and sets up his kingdom from there that's the story mark is telling what does that have to do with chaos and peace you were just talking about just set that aside for about 20 minutes we're going to come back to it okay let's look at the stories here we go first episode call this the episode of chaos on the sea so in verse 35 on that day evening had come he that's jesus said Let's go across to the other side. So, you know, in these narrative stories, when you hear the voice of someone, it's always important. It's, well, 
most of the time it's important, especially when there's very few words said. And so Jesus does not say a whole lot in these stories. So what he says carries weight. And here he's definitely got some intentions. We're going to go to the other side of the sea. Now, we just read this and we know a storm is coming. And, you know, most likely Jesus knows that storm is coming as well. But he's already made the statement, we're going to go to the other side of the sea. So he left the crowd. The disciples took him with him in the boat just as he was. He had been teaching, by the way, all day in that boat. You go back to chapter 4. There were throngs and crowds of people pressing in on him. And he said to his disciples earlier in that day, hey, put me in the boat so that I'm not pressed by everybody. I've got some space to be able to preach and teach. So Jesus has been preaching and teaching all day long. He's exhausted, and his disciples, you know, kind of situate him in the boat, as it were. And then he says, and there were other boats with them. That has nothing to do with the story, <laughs> other than uh, it's, uh, it gives credibility to the fact that this is an eyewitness account. You know, you all have those storytellers, and I'm kind of one of them, who just gives, like, ancillary, unnecessary details. <laughs> That's me. But it lets you know that, hey, I was actually there. You know, we were playing against this guy, and he had red shoes on. Who cares if he has red shoes? Just caught my eye. So you know I was there. And so this guy, Mark, has got eyewitness accounts. Jesus is in the boat. They're going to go across the sea. Jesus said, hey, let's go. And there just happened to be other boats that were there. In verse 37, a great windstorm arose. Now, I want you to, that's, you know, good translation. You know, if you have an ESV or NIV, these are all good translations, but um, they don't quite all the time capture some of the feel and flavor of, of you know, how, you know, it was originally written in Greek. And so the Greek there says, a whirlwind arose with a great wind. And so obviously that's redundant. It's repetitive for the sake of emphasis. It would have been perfectly acceptable if Mark had said, a whirlwind arose. If I told you a whirlwind arose, what are you thinking? Is it calm or windy? <laughs> You're thinking already, it's windy. And then he goes, what's a whirlwind with a mega wind? Big, mega is the Greek word, a mega wind. So a whirlwind with a mega wind comes to this ship on the sea. Now they're on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, again, this is widely known, well known, uh, that that sea was, it was actually pretty common. I shouldn't say common. It wasn't uncommon, I should say it that way, for these whirlwinds to pop up. But this one was notable in its power and its wind. And the wind was actually driving the waves, moving the water so powerfully that the boat was already filling up. And you see how these guys respond when they go to wake up Jesus. They're, they're saying, we're about to die. Now, these guys, again, this is well known. These guys are not like amateur boatsmen. Like, I had to look up what the stern was. <laughs> okay, I googled it. Oh, that's the back. Whew, good, okay. It's not like I'm out there on the Sea of Galilee trying to figure out how to get out of the storm. These were fishermen. Many of them were fishermen, right? And so they're, you know, especially the guys that weren't fishermen, they're like, yo, Peter, James, John, you guys know how to deal with this, right? And those guys are scared. Those guys think they're going to die. So this is a mega whirlwind situation, and there's real danger here. 
And of course, there's some type of parallel connection as you guys are sitting there listening. I'm processing this as well, going through it. We start to think of the storms in our lives. This chaos is dangerous. There's chaotic circumstances around us that that's really dangerous to us, where we think we're going to lose something very important. to us. These guys are in a, a whirlwind, but they, they think they're going to lose their lives. So again, you know, the Bible gives it to us in words here. There's you know, probably something better about our imagination than something on a screen, but this is a very tumultuous, chaotic experience at night in the dark, by the way. You know, they don't have a, electricity. You know, if you're trying to light a lantern in the midst of a whirlwind storm or waves of crap, you know, this is a brutal situation. And the contrast <laughs> to how they find Jesus just makes me laugh. And Mark, as I've told you before, he's a yarn spinner. He's a tale teller. He gives you a few details here. It says that, uh, you know, the, the water's filling up the boat. He's in the stern, which is in the back, which, again, where's all the water rushing to, the lowest point? So Jesus is probably in the, in a sense, worst part of the boat, that where the most of the water is, and he's sleeping on a cushion. You know, the cushion part is unnecessary. <laughs> Whether he has a pillow or not doesn't matter. But Mark's like, yeah, he's got a pillow. <laughs> Resting his head on the pillow. And then the last word in the sentence is sleeping. So he gives you all the details. Ba bop, ba bop, ba bop, sleeping. These guys are losing their minds, and Jesus is sleeping. <laughs> it's great. These stories are great. They're as true as they are great. And so they go to wake him up. Teacher! Do you not care? Is it nothing to you that we are perishing? You know, so they shake him. They wake him up. This shows the humanity of Jesus, though, that he actually is sleeping. They wake him up. And as he's coming, you know, you know, kind of clearing the cobwebs or whatever, again, he's been teaching all day. He's super tired. He's exhausted. They wake him up out of a dead sleep, and they make this accusation. I introduced you guys a few weeks ago to these ideas of, these quaintments. They ask a question, don't you care about us? Which is really a statement. You're not caring about us because you're sleeping on the job. And Jesus gets up and he, it says, rebukes or commands. It's a military term. He commands. He commands the wind and rebukes the sea. Can you imagine Jesus gets up out of the back of the boat, and he goes, be quiet, calm down, just into the air. And the disciples might be thinking, is he talking to us? <laughs> They're as tumultuous as the circumstance. They're freaking out. So he says, calm down, be quiet, which, by the way, is the same word in Mark chapter 1 when there was another demon-possessed man who was saying these things, and Jesus says, be quiet. It's almost like he's exercising the ocean here. <laughs> and immediately, whew, everything goes still. Wow. The 
contrast could not be more stark. Here's the chaos that is jeopardizing their lives. Jesus wakes up from a literal nap, commands the water and the wind, and they just stop. And then (laughs) he rebukes them. (laughs) He takes care of the circumstances, and he says, you know, guys, why are you so afraid? That's not the normal Greek word for fear, which you guys are familiar with, because that's phobos, which you guys know phobia. That's not what's used here. He actually uses the word for coward. Why are you acting so cowardly? Still no faith? That's how the Greek literally renders it. Still no faith? So there's this stern, I would still say, but mild rebuke. You've seen me, you know, uh, heal the paralytic. You've seen me with authority over demons. You've seen me heal the sick and the lame and the blind. And, you know, still no faith? You guys are so anxious and chaotic yourselves? So we'll come back to that. He rebukes them. (laughs) And so then it says, they were filled with great fear. (laughs) That is the word phobos. And again, he uses the word mega. So there was a mega wind. Now there's a mega calm. And now there's mega fear. They're way more fearful and reverential about Jesus than they were the storm. They're like, who is this cat? that even the wind and the waves obey him. You, you guys know this. You know who's in charge uh, of situations. When they come into the situation, they come into the room, and they say something, and people start moving. Okay? Military squadron, think of that. Captain, major, whoever comes in. You know, people stand up or whatever, and then he says, hey, we need this, this, and this, and then boom, people start moving. Oh, that guy's in charge. A coach with a team, everyone's kind of goofing around, milling around, like, hey, bring it in. And then everybody comes, oh, it must be the coach. He's in charge. Parents with, you know, little humans, hey, it's time to clean it up. And then it doesn't happen. (laughs) And, you know, they're not in charge. No, I'm kidding. So you know who's in charge when you say something and stuff happens. The context here, though, is... The wind and the waves? Who's got that kind of authority? That's what they're asking. I mean, they're starting to get who this Jesus is. And by the way, don't get it twisted. That's what biographies are for. Biographies are to teach us, to help us learn who's the main character. Who is the main character? Who is this Jesus guy? Psalm 107 really helps answer this. Some went down to the sea in ships. This is like, I said in the first service, so if you were here, I, I, I misspoke. That was about a thousand years before Jesus. It's actually probably closer to like five or six hundred years before Jesus. So anyway, some went down to the sea in the ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. So people are on the sea. He, the Lord, commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea, They mounted up to heaven. They went down into the depths. Their courage, speaking of the sailors, melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. That's 
That's hundreds of years before this scene with Jesus depicting uh, some men who are on the great seas caught in a storm with huge waves and at their wit's end. Okay. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble <laughs> or woke him up at the back of the boat. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. Who? The Lord, Yahweh, the creator God. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Shh, quiet. Then they were glad, obviously, that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, his wondrous works to the children of men. Extol him in the congregation of the people. Praise him in the assembly of the elders. So Psalm 107 helps us get at this. Who is this guy? He's the Lord. Jesus is not just another teacher, just another religious leader. He is fulfilling Old Testament categories. The only person in the world who commands the winds and the waves is God himself. And so it's with good reason that those men in that boat the storms got nothing on God. And they had incredible reverence and awe for Jesus. All right, let's go to the next episode. We'll apply a little bit more at the end. And the next episode, so they get to the other side of the sea, and this is chaos in the soul. They're in the country of the Gerasenes. The Gerasene country was like a little bit of the other side of the tracks. It's like brackish water. You know, brackish water is the salt water and the fresh water together. The Gerasen area was uh, got some Jews that were living in there, and you've got a bunch of Gentiles. And so, you, you know, especially when you see some of the things that are in that episode are things that normally Jewish people would identify as unclean. So if you were to touch a dead body, a.k.a. live among the tombs, like that particular man who had legion in him, he would have been viewed by the society as unclean. And certainly for there to be 2,000 pigs on the hillside is not something that Jewish people should have really been doing, if you read Leviticus, okay? And yet there seems to be this overlap between the, the Jewish realities, Jesus going there, and the Gentile realities. And it, what's so interesting to me and, and really moving to me is that Jesus went there specifically for this guy. When you read the episode here, he says at the beginning, after he got done teaching, he got in the boat. He says, we're going to the other side. <laughs> now there's a little whirlwind in between, but <laughs> he gets to the other side. And when he gets to the other side, he deals with this very disturbed man. One man gets back in the boat. He goes right back. That should amaze you. Jesus leaves the 99 to find the one. You might think no one else cares about you. Jesus knows and Jesus cares. So he goes to the other side of the sea, among the garrisons, he steps out of the boat, and immediately there meets him this man from the tombs. So now, who's this cat? Let's just get a little, you know, sketch of this guy, okay? He lives among the tombs, which as I just mentioned, is kind of, he's in an unclean area, so to speak. He has an unclean spirit. If you live among the tombs, you are isolated. You know, <laughs> we're like, man, that's weird. Those people thought it was weird, too. It's not like the people in the, in the land of Gerasene were like, oh, that's normal. No. He was isolated. Why was he among the tombs? Was there family members that had died and that he had mourned their loss and then, 
you know, again, the, the unclean spirit had kind of taken advantage of him in that state, or maybe he wanted to die, or there was some type of fascination with death. We don't know what it was, but we know for sure the fact that he made his home among the tombs made him an isolated man. He was also a rejected man. No one could bind him anymore. <laughs> you know what that means? They'd been trying to bind him. To he was viewed as a threat to society, something that society didn't want to deal with anymore. They were glad for him to be in the tombs, and they even tried to chain him there. But he was incredibly strong. He had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. So he's literally stronger than anyone in this room, just to you know, make it a competition. Unless you got some change, you want to try no, just. <laughs> and he broke the shackles in pieces. And so th it's, a, it's a very ironic and sad situation for this man. In one sense, he's completely free because no one can bind him. He can break all the chains. But he's also completely enslaved because nobody wants anything to do with him and his isolation is rejection. A sad, sad irony. And then Mark just adds this one little sentence that is not necessary but for emphasis. No one had the strength to subdue him. <laughs> and now remember, Jesus is coming to look for him specifically. The guy nobody can bind the guy nobody wants, the guy who's completely isolated, that's the one that Jesus is coming for. The one no one's strong enough to deal with. And it reminds us of Mark chapter 3, where Jesus' opponent said, oh, well, you have power over evil spirits because you're one of the evil spirits. And Jesus is like, you guys are crazy. No kingdom divided against itself can stand. First, someone has to come and bind the strong man. So the strong man represents sin and Satan and evil. And Jesus says, I've come stronger than the strong man. I bind the strong man because I'm stronger. And then I set his captives free. <laughs> no one's strong enough. Jesus is like, hold my grape juice. <laughs> I didn't know exactly what beverage to choose there. I went... G-rated. <laughs> Same word, by the way, John the Baptist. When he prepares the way for Jesus, he says, the one coming after me is mightier than I, stronger than I. So Jesus goes and he meets him. And that's a, that's a, the Greek word there is the, the idea of used for militaries when they confront one another. So Jesus steps out of the boat. This man comes out of the tombs running to Jesus. He's, a, he's also, by the way, the last sketch of him, he's, he's definitely oppressed and tormented by this evil spirit because he would wander night and day among the tombs on the mountains, always crying out, yelling. It would, you know, Again, I'm not going to do that, but it's so uncomfortable to hear the moaning and the yelling, and he would cut himself. I mean, this man is tormented, oppressed, isolated, rejected, and alone. That's the man that meets Jesus in this confrontation. 
And he comes to Jesus, he cries out with a loud voice, falling down before him, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high? I adjure you, don't torment me. So it's almost like, again, this evil spirit is, is you know, driving him before Jesus, and he's trying to take control over Jesus, tell Jesus what to do. <laughs> Jesus didn't sail across the Sea of Galilee to let this demon-possessed man tell him what to do. I adjure you, that's a... You know, that's a, a strong legal term. I hold you under oath. Don't torment me. Because Jesus had already started to say to the man, to the evil spirit, come out of him. And then Jesus does something that is just amazing. And again, it parallels what happened in the earlier episode. So you remember in that earlier episode how the whole storm was raging on and Jesus was just there sleeping and there's this great contrast between the chaos and the peace? Remember that? Well, here this man comes to Jesus and he's, it's chaos in his soul, right? Rejected, tormented, alone, all that stuff I described. Chaos. And he comes running up to Jesus with all this drama and he's yelling and I adjure you by the living God and don't torment him. It's just chaos. And Jesus says, very calmly, what's your name? Man, what a contrast, right? Jesus came for this guy, and he wants to know him. He sees past all of the chaos, all of the drama, all of that stuff. He says, I want you. This is why I love being a Christian. Jesus I'm not a Christian because I think all Christians are awesome. <laughs> now, Jesus tells me to love all Christians, and so, by God's grace, I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm a Christian because when I see Jesus like this, I am so compelled. There's nobody like him. doesn't address all the mess and the chaos. Who are you? And because of the man's oppression, he can't even answer for himself. What's your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Wow. The evil spirit is not just one evil spirit, it's a legion of evil spirits. And then, you know, the 2,000 pigs go into the sea, is it... 2,000, you know, a legion is like three to 5,000 or so soldiers. I mean, what is, what, I mean, the chaos in this man's soul must have been unbearable and unbelievable. And Jesus just commands a whole legion of opponents. They're begging him for permission. Whatever he says is what goes. He's stronger. No one else could subdue this man because no one else could encounter that kind of power, spiritual darkness. And Jesus literally walks up to him, command, just like he said to the wind and the waves, be gone, be gone. And then you see the man sitting down at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. The same kind of peace that was now in the sea, now you see the peace in this man's soul. Now just like when you see this great work of Jesus, those disciples were like, whoa, who is this guy? And they had fear. When the townspeople <laughs> see what happened to the legion guy, they're 
they're freaked out. And they actually say to Jesus, they're begging him, please leave. You freak us out. You scare us. Some commentators said, and I think rightly so, some of them were motivated financially. They lost 2,000 pigs, which is a big number of pigs to lose. We don't really care that this guy is in his right mind anymore. We just lost all that money. Please, Jesus, leave. So now you remember I said, hold it for about 20 minutes. So what's actually going on with the sea and the pigs? And what's, what's going on here? The exodus is what's going on here. Again, think back to the Exodus story. In the Exodus story, God conquers the, the Egyptians, the opponent, and then he leads his people through the sea. God commands the sea with a wind, Exodus tells us. And his people go through. And then when the opponents try to go through, what does God do to the sea? Closes it up, and the enemies of God are drowned in the sea. And so here are these two stories side by side, in Mark's new exodus, this is the new exodus. Jesus is telling you, this is the ultimate liberation. I've come to set you really free. The enemy's not the Egyptians anymore. The enemy's not the Babylonians. The enemy in your life isn't this person, that person, that situation, this situation. It's sin and Satan. It's legion. It's so interesting to me that the, the evil spirit here takes a Roman name. That's weird. Most people thought Rome was the enemy. No! Spiritual darkness, sin, and Satan, that's the enemy. And Jesus came to say, I'm stronger than all that. I've conquered, and when I set you free, you are free indeed. You want to be free? <laughs> you want to know forgiveness, liberation, joy, peace? You want to have that kind of transformation and calmness to your soul? It's the new exodus. Amen? All right, so let's just apply this. A couple minutes left. Number one, when you read these stories, what's, what's, in a sense, the big takeaway? I'd say, number one, first and foremost, you can't get it twisted. Who is Jesus? Jesus, make no mistake, these stories are saying, crystal clear, he is the Lord. Yahweh, the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. So that has all kinds of ramifications to it, but he's not just a good teacher. He's not just a nice guy. You, you, when you really see Jesus for who he is, like you see how these people respond, once they kind of get a glimpse of who he is, it's reverence, it's awe, he's compelling, amazing, reverential fear. But also this incredible calmness and joy. <laughs> it's the best way to live. So Jesus is the Son of God. As the demons actually said, you are the Son of the Most High God. So don't miss that for sure. This is a biography of Jesus written by Mark. Who is he? He's the Lord. Secondly, and we hinted at it already in the first episode, as you're seeking to connect with Jesus and know Jesus, the reality of faith is so important. So the disciples were, they themselves were chaotic and afraid and cowardly. And what's going to change them from that to, you know, as we see about a year or so later, they, they start the early church and they're filled with courage. They actually met Jesus and they learned to trust him. And so trust is a, a funny thing. Faith is a, a funny thing. Not funny. It's, it's the way that it operates isn't always straightforward. So if I, if I tell you, hey, uh, trust me. 
and you don't know me? You're like, well, I guess I could. <laughs> you know, I, I use the illustration in the 9 o'clock uh, this morning. Um, so we were having some folks over, and we were cleaning the house to get ready for it, and I was swiffering. Anybody eat the swiffer? So much cleanlier than a mop. If you're a mop person, it's like, what are you even doing? No, okay. <laughs> right? So I'm swiffering, right? And you got the button that sprays out the water. And I was hitting the button, and it was like, it was, you know, that's my impression of it's out of juice. It's out of swiffer juice. I, the, my first thought was, I'm sure Julie has more swiffer juice in the closet. Walked to the garage, open thing, boom, sure enough, Swiffer juice, boom, right there. Put it right in, kept Swiffering, boom, no problem. Why did I have confidence, faith, that there were Swiffer juice in the garage? Because, Je not Jesus. <laughs> Julie <laughs> has demonstrated time and time and time again that she takes care of those things, and so faith comes when you see faithfulness. If you're a coach, by the way, and you tell a player to be confident, that's the same thing. They can't just be magically confident. They have to demonstrate competence in practice, and when that practice is, that's been demonstrated, then they get confidence. And so the same thing is here with Jesus and his disciples. He's saying, hey, you should have been looking at this and this and this and this and this that I have done so that you'll have courage and faith. And so if you want to have faith, what you need to have faith to and have this relationship with Jesus, then you need to look at him. You need to see all of the wonderful and mighty things that he has done, certainly written in here, also in your life and in the lives of other people around you, and you will believe and grow. Third takeaway is Jesus meets us in our storms, circumstances, and also our sins. And here's what I mean. These stories were not written so that, I mean, all of us, you can probably think of a storm that you're in right now or that you have been in recently or something like that, a, a situation or circumstance in your life. And in this, you know, this story, oh, it's so great, they were rescued. But you do know how most of the disciples and apostles ended their lives, right? They were persecuted and most of them martyred and killed. So it wasn't like Jesus delivered them from every earthly storm. This is why, again, I told you that Exodus part, and we'd come back to it. The Exodus thing tells you the big story of the Bible. The big story of the Bible is that despite our temporal, circumstantial storms that we might go through, if you're connected to Jesus, he's ultimately leading you to shalom, peace, and everlasting life, so that in the midst of your current storm, you can experience that same kind of peace. I mean, I can testify, my family has been at death's door a couple of different times, in our opinion, prematurely. And we are begging God, in the midst of that storm, to do something different. And he didn't. But we know the big story. And in the big story, there's resurrection and new heavens and new earth for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so peace and joy in the present storm. That's how these stories function. They remind you that in the storm, you're with Yahweh, who's in charge of the bigger story. And then, in terms of the chaos of our sin, you know, this, this guy is like an extreme case. <laughs> I mean, most of you aren't struggling like he 
was with Legion. Uh, because you're all clothed and in your right minds here. <laughs> I love that joke. I said it at 9 o'clock. They didn't laugh either. Neither did you. I said it again because I love it. Anyway. But it's important for you to, to see how this functions. This story is supposed to function for you. You're not supposed to like try to find out every single way you're like the guy with Legion. That's not what you're supposed to do. By way of contrast, let me, let me show you the other side, how this might work. Imagine if Jesus sailed across the sea through the whirlwind or whatever, and he gets the other side, and he wants to talk to uh, a pretty normal, average, 15-year-old Jewish boy who had bar barely done anything wrong in his whole life, and Jesus forgives him of like 10 sins. And that's the story. <laughs> it's like, well, that would be a boring story. No. <laughs> You'd walk away from that story going, well, I've done way more sins than that Jewish boy, so that story doesn't really apply to me. And you would argue from the lesser to the greater. You need to flip that on his head. Jesus goes and rescues a guy like this to show you that if he can rescue a guy like that, he can certainly rescue you. Does that make sense? It's not about how much we've done or how much we haven't done, that type of thing. He wants, it's almost like he, he puts it so far to the extremes, like there's probably no one in the history of the world that's been in, you know, kind of, uh, indwelt with so much evil, corruption, and difficulty, and Jesus can even go there and go, I'm stronger. So if he can do that for him, he can certainly do that for you. No matter how much sin and difficulty and corruption are in your life, Jesus' death and resurrection is stronger than all of the wickedness in the world, and specifically even any wickedness that was in your, in your soul. And so Jesus says, come to me, confess your sins in my name, and be forgiven, be healed, be set free. And then lastly, that guy uh, is delivered, and he wants to be with Jesus so bad. Which is, like, if you know Jesus and you've been delivered with him, you, you know what that's like. You just want to be with him so bad. And so the, the country folk are like, leave, we're begging you, Jesus, leave, you scare us. And the guy who'd been delivered, he's begging Jesus, please let me come back in the boat with you. And Jesus says, no, you can't come. Can't come. But I have a mission for you. I want you to go to your family, Oikos, your house, and to your friends, and I want you to tell them all the great things that God has done for you. And the mercy that he has shown you. And so, brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus, this is his command and commission to you. Go and tell folk winsomely, carefully, respectfully, but go and tell them what great things God has done for you and the mercy he has shown you. You know, sometimes, again, we kind of think, well, you know, Maybe, maybe your story is more akin to, you got maybe a, a bit more of a dramatic story like that man, and I can just imagine this man like maybe five, ten years later, and he's like, well, you know, I'm kind of like sick of sharing the story. I mean, here we are talking about 2,000 years later, and he's like, I'm not really that guy anymore. You know, I'm a lot different. I'm not filled with legion anymore, so do I need to keep telling that? Yes. And so if, you know, if that's your story, then praise God. Tell the story. He says, tell the story of what God did for you and the mercy. So you weave together the story of God's mercy along with your circumstances, and people will marvel, as the passage says. 
And on the other hand, we shouldn't be shy if our story is not like that. We still have a story of how God has done great work in our lives and shown us mercy. And so we don't want to be shy on either end of the spectrum. Jesus, we've met Jesus. And so go to your homes and to your friends and tell them what great things God has done for you and the mercy he has shown you. Amen?